to another episode of Deeper Pod. I'm your host, Brody Stuart Werner. Happy New Year, my friends. I'm back. It's been far too long. The holidays went well. I visited family, spent time with my husband, and now I'm really digging in on a couple of projects that I've got on the go. I've begun working on a book, which I hope to have written by the end of the year. I can't say much about it right now, but it is a passion project of mine that I've wanted to develop for many years now. It's a nonfiction work regarding queer history in Canada. I'll keep it at that. Very vague, but I'm so excited about it. There really isn't a wealth of literature in Canada focusing on queer history, so there are a lot of little gems to be uncovered, and this particular gem that I'm working on is is something that I think people will be very interested in. I certainly am. The pandemic is still top of mind here in Nova Scotia. Cases of COVID-19 are sky high, so we've been lying low. Other than that, all things considered, all is well. I hope your 2022 is off to a fabulous start. Today, I will be speaking with the remarkable Selena Cesar Chavin. She is a former Canadian member of parliament and author of the new book, Can You Hear Me Now? But before I get to my interview with Selena, I want to take a look at what's been happening in the queer sphere. Liberty Coalition Canada has come out against Bill C-4, which criminalizes conversion therapy in Canada. This law took effect earlier this month in January, and effectively, anybody who carries out or aids and abets in the practice of conversion therapy could be sentenced to up to five years in prison. Frankly, I think the penalty should be higher, much higher, but Liberty Coalition Canada does not think so. They recently stated, and I quote, this bill, while purporting to to protect individuals from coercion and abuse in the form of conversion therapy will instead criminalize Christianity in our country. This bill's wording is sufficiently broad to allow for the criminal prosecution of Christians who would speak biblical truth into the lives of those in bondage to sexual sins like homosexuality and transgenderism, end quote. I really get tired of these groups, these cults, in their trite statements, and I desperately want to ignore them. But then I remember that members of Liberty Coalition Canada, regrettably, have children and are responsible for young people, and their destructive rhetoric needs to be challenged. So, my message to Liberty Coalition Canada is short and sweet. Fuck you. But seriously, these people are the one word that keeps coming to mind is foul. These people are foul. They are miserable, spiritually marred by their ignorance, and completely and utterly lost, period. You can't convert queerness away. It's actually torture you're promoting. Thankfully, the effort to ban conversion therapy was done so as a bipartisan effort, so I really don't think Liberty Coalition Canada will be gaining much traction, but it's always nice to give the finger to zealots isn't it? In more positive news, last year, I neglected to talk about this, but Canada's Quinn became the first openly transgender non-binary athlete in any sport to ever win an Olympic medal. I'm so proud of Quinn and their commitment to inclusivity and advocacy for queer athletes. I'm not very active in the athletic 
community, but from what I understand, it it is not always the most welcoming place for queer people. So anytime I see an athlete come forward and offer their support to the LGBTQ plus community and reveal their authentic self to the public, despite whatever backlash they may receive, is incredibly inspiring. And, and I hope this trend continues in the sports world. So we woke up to some splendid news here in Nova Scotia. Prince Andrew High School will be renamed. I think one of the biggest stories that I've been following over the past few weeks has been the downfall of Prince Andrew, who has been stripped of his military titles and royal patronages. All other institutions bearing the name of this sex predator should also be changed. I can't fathom how anybody who watched his interview with British journalist Emily Matlise could leave questioning his guilt. It was the most cringeworthy TV segment that I have watched in a very long time. The doublespeak, contradictory, and downright peculiar statements. My goodness. The royal family really needs to look inward and evaluate its purpose and decide what it wants to achieve going forward. In my mind, its decorum is lost. First, the accusations of racism made by the Sussexes, and now this, and now this. One of the highest ranking members of the family accused of sexual misconduct and having established relationships with two of the most notorious sex traffickers in recent history. It's revolting. I no longer know, I don't know if I've ever known, what the royal family stands for. It seems these days it's racism, predation, and the occasional Netflix documentary or drama about Princess Diana. So what is it that we are spending our tax dollars to maintain and uphold? I'm not saying that members of the family have not done good. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they've engaged in great charitable endeavors. I don't deny that. But do those endeavors warrant promoting this institution and giving these people a megaphone? I don't think so. And I think the pros and cons really need to be weighed. I hope the book is completely thrown at Prince Andrew and I applaud Virginia Giuffre for her courage to take on this institution, one of the most powerful in the world. I certainly would not be doing it with the amount of poise that she has exhibited in interviews and so forth. Now for my interview with Selena Cesar Chavan. She is a former Canadian member of parliament and author of the new book, can you hear me now? She made headlines when she resigned from Justin Trudeau's Liberal Caucus, citing racism, microaggressions, and tokenism as some of the reasons for her departure. Selena is a force and an inspiration. I hope you enjoy our chat. Well, I've got your book with me. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Your book is marvelous. I'm on chapter nine, so I've been reading it constantly over the past 24, 48 hours. It's really, really good. Before I begin, I just want to say I'm kind of reading your book through a particular lens. Up until the last election, I was employed by a liberal minister. And you're the first person who has sort of really articulated a lot of my thoughts about how the House of Commons operates. And you've really put it into clear language that when I've tried to convey certain things to people who don't work in government, it, it isn't really clear. And I feel like your book really does that. I only really have one question about government, though. And my first lesson when I began working on Parliament Hill was that government isn't a meritocracy. Party loyalty means a lot more than an understanding of the portfolio for which a lot of junior staffers and others are working in. That was something that I, I noticed. For you personally, how do you think the House of Congress 
commons can be reformed. I know that's a huge discussion that would take longer than th- our 30 minutes to to answer, but what are some of the first steps that you think could be taken? To reform or to change it? <laughs> oh my gosh, let's just start with the hard questions. So, yeah, so let's 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 talk about the meritocracy part first. So, it's weird because do you really select people based on their ability to do a particular job? And if that is correct, then what is the basis by which you're measuring them, their ability to do that job. And so to answer this question, I needed, I need, uh, this is a question I've been thinking about, not in that exact same context, but in a similar context. And I'll go back to when I left and, you know, people kept saying, well, what's wrong with it? What's the problem? What needs to be fixed? Is it broken? You know, and I was just like, there are parts of it structurally, every institution has parts that are broken, but what is fundamentally wrong and hence back to the meaning of the meritocracy, like the ability piece. What I think needs to reform is not actually the institution, but the ability by of which we measure. And I think that ability to be empathetic is missing. And empathy requires that you see people, like you, you see them, you feel them. And if you have not lived enough Brody, to hear people's stories, to understand their struggles, to know that on a regular basis, people get phone calls from bill collectors and they're like, oh yeah, oh no, I didn't pay it last Tuesday. No, I, me- I meant next Tuesday, knowing you're not going to get any money next Tuesday. If you if you don't know that story, if you don't know how people actually live and you don't have the empathy that is gained through conversations and listening, you cannot have the empathetic courage when you're in the system to have the ability to do what's right by the people who need you the most. Hence the reason why during COVID, when we need to give pay equity or paid sick days to people who need it the most, usually people of color, where are we at? We're still debating this. Why? Because we do not have the empathetic courage to do what is right because we haven't taken the time to gain the empathy to hear people's stories, to understand that people are struggling. And so the institution in of itself does not need to change, but the people who are occupying the space need a lot of work. Couldn't agree with you more. I think that's such a brilliant way of putting it. You emigrated to Canada from Grenada at two years old, and you talked candidly about how your parents had to leave you behind as your visa was late to being received. In what ways did those two years away from your immediate family shape your identity? Ooh, oof, that is a great question. So I will tie it back into, because I think everything is sort of looped into this infinity, right? Like, it, hence the reason I have it tattooed, I have the ring, I have like everything is for me a, a, a continuous loop. And so I think it shaped my identity in, in a couple of ways. Number one, it made me very independent very early. Whether it was conscious or not, I was always like, no, you want me to go left, I'll go right. <laughs> you want me to go up, I'll go down. Right? And I wasn't actually ever willing to, to travel the road most traveled. I wanted to, you know, blaze my own trail. That firm sense of independence and I think, you know, you really have to do it for yourself was something that was brought to bear really early. And so it made me very independent, but it also gave me a strategy of resilience. Like, you know, people might not always be there to protect you, to to watch out for you, to have your back. 
So how do you build up these strategies? And I think when you build up these strategies, it does have a downfall. So it does make you overcompensate, especially when you have mental health challenges. So, you know, you have that independence, but then you also are like so independent because you have been left behind that you're now in a state of constantly relying on yourself when you know that you need help. Right. So I think there was a there was a number of of ways in which it impacted me. But I think it, the most profound was, you know, I don't ever want to be alone. I'm like death, like it's like one of my fears. And it's probably the only time I've ever mentioned this out loud. It's not in the book. Most of what I'm saying to you is not in the book. But one of my greatest fears is being alone. And so when you get to the part of the book where I sit as an independent, it was like petrifying. I was petrified to be there knowing that people, not just that I'm alone, but people were staring at me being alone, like mocking me being alone. And um, it was, I think if we come full circle on that, it was one of the scariest moments of my life to sit in that corner. But then you kind of remember back that in that loneliness, you've made history. In that loneliness, you stood on the right side of history. And therefore, all of those lessons of resilience and mental health strength that brought you to this moment allows you to survive that moment. When is the last time you were back in Grenada? Oh my God, 2019, I had a blast. Yeah, <laughs> my mom's 70th birthday, yeah. Do you have any plans, COVID permitting, to make it make it over? Yeah, we've actually tried to travel a couple of different times, but between Omicron and various requirements for countries, you just it just is impossible. But yes, we are, we are a family of travelers. 2020 was a year in which my daughters in particular were grounded for the first time in their life, meaning they were ne- weren't up in the air for an entire year. And mm-hmm. it was like, yeah, <laughs> everybody's home. But yeah, we love to travel. So yes, we'll be making it back out there for sure. In the book, you present a very complicated portrait of your mother. On one hand, she's stern, she's forceful, she's rigid. But on the other hand, it's clear that she really cares about you. In one excerpt, you talk about how she allowed you to miss school to demonstrate on behalf of Rodney King. As an adult, have you spoken with your mother about the elements of your upbringing that you didn't particularly appreciate? Or is it something that you've dealt with on your own? Oh, yeah, we've we've had to talk about it. And in fact, writing this book has been very therapeutic for that, right? You know, growing up, you don't understand, like, why is she so strict? Why is she so miserable with me all the time? And then I use a line in the book that says, you know, I feared her while she feared for me and treated me the way that she knew the world would. And so I, I always say, like, if people have a problem with my response to Justin Trudeau, like, blame my mom. <laughs> She prepared me for that moment. Like, and I dedicate the book to her, you know, the iron that sharpened me. And it was really a preparation for, I know that this child who was left back home, came here, is fiercely independent, goes left when I tell her to go right, goes up when I tell her to go down, is going to meet head on a a system that is cold and steely. And I need to make her equally steely and resilient and possibly cold in some aspects. You know, some of that, you know, she wasn't like squishy and mushy and huggy and, you know, lovey-dovey. She wasn't that. She She made me like gritty. In as much as we still even butt heads on a number of issues, there is a deep and profound respect for the woman that created this woman, 
right? Like I wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for her. And so irrespective of all of the challenges, which I write about in the book, you know, that moment when she said, I'm coming, I'm taking you to your graduation. I'm going to be there with you. That was, I love you. That was the, I love you. That was the, I'll ride or die for you moment. And you you get this like flashbulb of, oh my God, she actually does care, right? She actually does love me. So yeah, we've kind of come full circle with it. To say that our relationship is like the best now, no, it's pretty much stays the same, but there is this, there's this understanding of love and compassion that doesn't have to be said explicitly as, you know, kisses and hugs and squeezes and stuff like that. Every now and again, she does get mushy, but I'm not that kind of person. A frequent sort of theme in your book is the importance of self-reflection and understanding what's causing you pain and taking the intentional step to heal that part or parts of yourself. What does authenticity mean to you? So right now I'm the senior advisor for equity at Queens, right? And when we when we think about when I think about authenticity and the ability to be authentic, I'll use a a sort of theme that I use when I talk about equity or justice more particularly. What that requires is self-awareness, is the understanding that everybody irrespective of their intersecting identity or identities, uh, know what it feels like to be excluded at some point, right? You weren't, you were picked last for the soccer game. You weren't invited to the wedding. You worked hard, but didn't get the promotion. Everybody knows what that feels like as a white man or a person with multiple intersecting identities. You know what that exclusion feels like, right? So your self-awareness should draw you to the need for why we need equity. Because some people feel that, you know, sort of randomly in their life. Some people feel that exclusion every single day. Now, when it comes to authenticity, the self-reflection and the self-awareness of your power and privilege. So understanding from a self-reflective position that, hmm, I may understand exclusion, but I feel it like, you know, every once in a while, as opposed to people feel it every day. I could then shift my power and privilege to leave space for others so that when they're in that space, they could fully bloom. And so when I talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I talk about it like seeds. You know, you have different seeds on a table, sunflower seeds, mustard seeds, you have nuts, you have dates, you have things like that. But you only know what their potential is based on their phenotypic representation. They're black, they're red, they're dried, they're curved, whatever. The real potential is on the inside. When you plant those seeds into a non-toxic environment or to a culture that is rich and inviting, they get roots, the roots touch, that's where you call inclusion, the sprout comes up and you start to get equity. When you really get justice is when that self-awareness requires you to shift over and allow that little bit of equity that's coming up in that plant to actually bloom. When that plant blooms, that's when you're allowed to be your full authentic self. But sometimes, you know, cause Selena's a little much, you know, you need to like shift really over so that Selena could really bloom. Sometimes people aren't self-aware enough to do that, to like to go, okay, okay, Selena. You do your thing. I'm going to let you give all your ideas, your perspectives, your dissenting opinion, your knowledge, your identity-related knowledge, expertise, and experience. I'm going to allow it to bloom here at this table. 
And in most cases, people don't understand how self-awareness, that self-reflection of their own mistakes, their hurts, their feelings of alone, frustration, guilt, shame, how that could then be used as a vehicle for good to allow not to just themselves to be fully authentic, but to to allow others space for that authenticity as well. You talk about your maternal grandmother and how you took her wisdom for granted in your youth. What kinds of questions do you wish you could ask her today? Oh, you've asked me like about three questions that I've never been asked before. Um, I would ask her what she would mix in all those plants and herbs that she'd just go pick off a tree somewhere and then crush it up, add a candle wax, rub it in her hand and like put it on your body and all of a sudden you were healed. And it was just like, what? Right? Like it was things like that, that you thought, well, she doesn't have the title of doctor and she's not formally educated. She doesn't have a master's or a bachelor's degree. I don't even know if she's finished high school. So all of a sudden, all of those things that she did that actually made you feel better were discarded. I would have asked her about the stories of our history, right? About who she was and you know, what she loved and what she wanted to be. And, you know, how does she see parts of me in herself? You know, I would have taken time to really know her. I I feel like I knew of her, even though we lived together for years, 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 but I didn't know her because I was too busy dismissing some of the stuff that she did. And I remember once my my husband got really, really sick. He was he went to every single hospital in Toronto. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And then she just said, I've had enough of this. And she started cutting plants and blending a whole bunch of stuff. And then she said to my husband, she's like, drink this. And he's like, yeah, Grams, I'm, I'm good. And she's like, I didn't ask. <laughs> and he drank it. And the next day it was gone. I don't know what that is. I don't know what she did. And that is like, who does that? Like, duh, hello, McFly. Like, really? You talk about mentorship in your book. You mentioned Dr. Carol Greenwood, Jean Lazarus, Dr. Don Stuss, and Sally Walker. Uh, could you just touch on the importance of mentorship to you as somebody who's been mentored and also somebody who mentors others? Man, great question again. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, I, I say in the book, mentors see in you things that you often don't see in yourself. And it's interesting because all the people that you've mentioned, except for except for Jean Lazarus, Jean Lazarus is the only black woman in that list. White women, older white man is is Dr. Stuss, who who passed away a little while ago. And it always makes me teary when I think about him. But just the ability to push you outside of your comfort zone with enough grace that you don't feel threatened by your own power. Dr. Stuss, Carol Greenwood, Sally Walker in particular, Jean Lazarus, just pushed me outside of my comfort zone. Like, especially at the parts where I felt most vulnerable, they showed up, right? So coming out of university, almost failing university, Carol Greenwood shows up, she pushes me outside of my comfort zone with just enough delicacy that I'm like, oh, Okay, I can't, you know, you, you kind of wiggle around in your own skin. And you're like, oh, I, I can do this. I, I, I'm, I'm capable. And then you meet someone else and they're like, push you a little bit more out of your comfort zone. And you're like, mm, yeah, I, I could do that too. And then you realize, and then you see Gene Lazarus and you're like, oh my God, I could be that. And I could, I could do that. You could, like, and, and all of a sudden you're doing all of these things and you don't even realize 
And a mentor is somebody that does that. They see things in you that you don't see in yourself and they push you towards it with grace. That's why I always say that you, you don't need a mentor who looks like you. You need a mentor who sees you. In the book, you mention how in your early years, you often felt like a failure and a fraud. Do you still feel that way? Oh my God, you're coming with all the realness with this podcast, you <laughs> Um, oh my God, Brody. Um, okay. So I'm going to come with the real too. Uh, yeah, I do. So right now I'm on this like very deep spiritual journey. I'm studying Ayurveda, which is an ancient Indian practice, thousands of years old that looks at well-being through nutrition, wellness, uh, meditation, all of these things. And certainly I do feel like a, a fraud. <laughs> Because people don't know that side of me and I don't talk about it. I mean, this might be the one of few times that I've said it out loud that I'm, I'm deeply studying. And I guess you could see the lotus flower and the ohm symbol the, behind me. But I'm, I'm, I'm deeply in this practice to because I've been hurt and I need to, to heal. What have some of your takeaways been from, from the practice? That I've been searching for peace and healing outside that I need to search for peace and healing inside. Nobody could give that to me. And, you know, leaving politics was very, very painful. But you'll see in the book that I call it the most painfully beautiful experience that I've had because I've taken all that pain and I'm now on a journey that is very beautiful. That has brought me so much joy, but still part of me doesn't talk about it because I feel like maybe people won't understand. Maybe they'll think that, you know, I'm crazy. So I, I, I worry about that. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't think you should. I like, this is your story, not mine, but everything you're saying, uh, again, you were the elected official. I was a junior staffer, but everything you're saying resonates so fully in, in respect to the atmosphere you were in and how it felt, how you write about it in the book. All of that is so real and honest. So thank you, Selena. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And your questions were so insightful and actually made me think. I got a few that I'd never asked before. So thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Selena Cesar Chavan. I encourage you to pick up her memoir, Can You Hear Me Now? Available in bookstores everywhere. When I bought the book at Chapters, I thought I was about to read a political story, but it's so much more than that. It's a story of strength, redemption, defying the odds, staying true to yourself, and the racism propagated by our institutions. It's a phenomenal read. It's a phenomenal book, and I encourage you to pick up your copy ASAP. As I said at the beginning, Selena is a force, and you should be following her on Twitter and Instagram at IamSelenaCC to see what she's up to. I'm Brody Stewart-Werner. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be well. Mm-hmm.